many of the Buddhist texts begin with a, a greeting, O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, remember who you really are. And these phrases offer a, a respect to your own capacities for awakening, for compassion, for remembering and understanding the mystery of this life. Um, and then they invite through a variety of practices, um, ways to quiet the mind, open the heart, investigate, discover, look into the question of who am I? What is this life that I've been given and how do I live it wisely? Now, one of the things that people tend to misunderstand when they come to learn about meditation is that there's a sense in the beginning that meditation and mindfulness itself is a kind of passive activity that you learn to sit quietly and follow your breath and be mindful of what arises as a kind of witness to it all, well-behaved witness. Um, but as we talked about a little bit last week, for those who were here when Pascal was with me, mindfulness is usually paired with a second word. Sati is mindfulness and sampajanya of clear comprehension. And it really has three parts, to see clearly, and then to assess what's healthy or helpful and what's not helpful, and then to respond. And when you go to study Zen, one of the things that Zen is actually very strong about is the response part. When you, when you meet with a Zen master, they don't want to hear the answer to the koan as some words, but they want you to demonstrate your understanding. So some years ago, this great Tibetan Lama, Kalu Rinpoche, who was a teacher of mine, he was uh, born in the 1890s and lived 12 years in a cave in Tibet. and was this great kind of Martian-looking meditation master, extraordinary being. Anyway, he met um, Zen master Sansanim, who was a Korean Zen master and also a, a friend and teacher of mine, um, in the airport in Albuquerque. They were both on the Dharma circuit going around. <laughs> and uh, so um, Sansanim, who was in the kind of pushy Zen master role, decided, okay, I will test the enlightenment of this great Lama. Um, and so he pulled out of his bag an orange um, and he held it up. He said, oh, you great meditation master, what is this? What is this? This is the traditional Zen question. What is this? And you need to respond in some way. Now the normal Zen answer, if you trained yourself in Zen, would be to take the orange, open it, and eat some of it. I mean, that's the point. It's not to give it a name, but to say, to, to see it clearly and then respond um, and do something useful with it. So the answer to what is this is to eat the orange, right? So he's holding it up, what is this, what is this, asking and through the translator in English to Tibetan, whatever. <laughs> and finally Kala Rinpoche turns to his translator and says, what's the problem, don't they have oranges in his country? <laughs> so somehow we need to find the way not only to quiet the mind, to open the heart, to connect ourselves with what we already know is most important, but then we also have to find a way to bring this into the world, to bring our understanding, because we're always engaging and living in the world. And this last week I had the pleasure and privilege of going over to Occupy Oakland and Occupy Berkeley. I'm a proud Berkeley parent. My daughter went to Cal and now she's in law school over there doing human rights law. And um, I was there especially on Tuesday when Occupy Oakland came down to Sproul Hall Plaza and there was like a thousand or fifteen hundred people marching down Telegraph Avenue, walked the whole way from Oakland. Here comes Oakland there were like five thousand students in Sproul Hall Plaza um, waiting for them and there was the the honorary annual uh, lecture that um, Robert Wright gave um, 
that was um, in honor of Mario Savio's free speech movement. So it was a, and what was beautiful about it was how um, well organized it was, how friendly it seemed. It was kind of a cross between a farmer's market and a revolution or something like that. It really, and there was one Berkeley student up on the stage there on a bicycle turning the generator, generating the electricity for the sound system. I mean, it was very ecological. It was, that part was really beautiful. And the signs, there were these beautiful signs like, the beginning is near. You know, I thought that was a great sign. Or occupy your heart, right? And, and various things like that, you know. And actually, a couple of days later, the chancellor at Berkeley said that there will be no tents in Sproul Hall Plaza, right? So there's also a certain sense of um, uh, stubbornness and brilliance and humor that is being brought to it. It's not like some great confrontation. No tents allowed. You cannot plant a tent or place a tent on Sproul Hall Plaza. So some students came in and filled a tent with um, helium balloons and floated it over Sproul Hall Plaza. <laughs> <laughs> but there was also a kind of intelligence. There was there was um, groups of 20 people and, you know, this was the instruction that was passed out to 5,000 people. Get in groups of 20 and we'll send the ballots and we'll have this repeating system of, of questions of how we should proceed and here's how we're all going to vote together in some way. Um, and it wasn't so much anti-anything. It was, and we are the 99%, but it was a recognition that there's a value to, the, to communitas, to to government or to the commonwealth that um, we actually, even with government is being vilified now, we actually need fire departments and roads and good education for the next generation of our country and our children. Um, and this is really what people were standing up for. And, you know, it's said to be leaderless, um, although there was a big sign that said leaderless and there was a picture of Gandhi and Martin Luther King on it. It was quite lovely. Um, but in some way, instead of having somebody stand up and say, I'm the leader, you know, um, it's more like the, like the immune system. There's something that's out of balance um, in the cycle of the distribution of opportunity and care in the culture. Um, and it's rising up in some way in, in a collective web of people rather than with a great leader. Um, and it, it's a really interesting time um, to see that. Um, whatever your politics. Um, and America goes through these cycles. Um, and I don't think it's exactly um, class warfare, even though it's being called that at all. Um, there have been cycles in the 1830s and the 1880s and the Great Depression where things get out of balance and power gets, gets accumulated in certain ways that aren't healthy or an, an, an economic power in the society. And then people say, this isn't right. We have a different vision that we've carried of what it means to live together in an honorable way. So I'm actually quite heartened by it all, and we'll see what happens with it. Um, but I see it um, occupy the moment, occupy your heart, as um, that part of mindfulness that not only sees the way things are, but says, well, now let us, let us respond. That all being said, Nobody really knows where it's going to go. It's like looking at Egypt now, you know, what's going to happen, or Libya, even here. It's really kind of mysterious, and we have to kind of find our way through it. And that's really the theme of the talk tonight, is that we sense that there's some bigger mystery, the mystery of being born and dying and incarnate in our lives, and the mystery of things that we don't really know how to lead or govern, but yet we have to find our way to express our understanding. I had the privilege a few weeks ago of going to the memorial service for Steve Jobs um, at Stanford, and it was in the, this magnificent Baroque chapel in Stanford that looks like some great European chapel, great st stained glass windows and so forth. And it was late afternoon. There was more security than I've ever seen at anything. And I thought, why so much security? He's dead, you know, what's the problem? <laughs> but anyway, we're all out there, and there's probably 600 of us. So everybody dressed in black but me, because I'd just flown in from, from Seattle, and I hadn't known that I was going to be able to go, and I didn't have a private jet with a wardrobe in it to change, like most of the people there. But anyway, 
Um, they rang the bell for people to enter the chapel at 10 after 6. And everybody went in and sat down. And the service didn't start for about 20 minutes. And it was the coolest thing if I had in my wildest dreams. First of all, we sat quietly for 20 minutes because there was that sense of the mystery of being between the worlds. Here's somebody you knew or you loved or was a friend or something, and they're gone. And when somebody dies, it opens the gate for us to remember something really mysterious. And so after 20 minutes were up, this guy gets up in the front of the room, not so far from where I'm sitting, with his cello and starts to play. And after about two notes, I go, oh, yo-yo ma, wow. You know, because I'd never seen him play. It was played 15 minutes, this Bach cantata and the beautiful acoustics. And then he got up and he said, you know, Steve was a friend of mine and I played for him a, in these last weeks. And we had a deal. I once asked him if I, something happened to me if he would speak at my memorial. And he said, yeah, if I would play at his, and you know how Steve was, he always got his way, so here I am, you know. <laughs> and Joan Baez sang, and Bono from U2, and the family spoke. It was very moving, but um, I saw why there was so much security when I went up to the front to talk to some people that I knew very well there. Um, talked to Jerry Brown, who's a friend. and uh, There was Hillary and Bill, and there was Al Gore, and there was Condoleezza, and there was... Um, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Jerry Brown, and there was Bill Gates, and you know. Um, and the cool thing was, they had to sit and do nothing for 20 minutes. <laughs> I gotta tell you, silent, not even on their blackberries or something, just sit and meditate in this chapel in the presence of the mystery of death. It was really beautiful. It was like my dream meditation class, right? <laughs> So I taught a few years ago down at UCLA together with Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh, a big conference for a couple of thousand mostly healers and therapists on Eastern Western psychology. And Thich Nhat Hanh started with a story that I've told at other times on Monday night. He talked about the death of his mother and how when he was a young man, young monk in his early 20s, his mother died, and he said, I was so close to her, and I just grieved terribly for a year. I missed her so much. And then one night in my little hut in the mountains, I had a dream of my mother, and she came to me, and she talked to me, and her hair was flowing down, and she was wearing that beautiful Tibet, uh, Vietnamese ao dai, or whatever that, that silk garment is. And I had the very strong feeling that she was with me and that she didn't really die. And I opened my eyes and I could still feel her with me. And I went out to walk in the moonlight, he said, and the moon touching my skin, the moonlight in the tea plantation, was just the way my mother touched me, so caressingly soft. And I felt my mother was there with me and the idea that she had died was wrong because she was there, and I felt my body was really her body. It came out of her body, and it was her. And he said, and I realized that my mother and I and her parents and my grandparents and great-parents, great-grandparents, were all there together, leaving footprints in the damp evening soil with my feet. And I could feel my body and my mother's body were the same. And this is a a story that he also uses to open the book that he wrote called No Death, No Fear, of that interweaving of life that we participate in. So there's this mystery. And the mystery, given that you have a human incarnation, is joy and sorrow, birth and death, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, gain and loss, night and day, sweet and sour. It's made of this duality, right? Anybody not have this? <laughs> it's checking, right, okay. <laughs> you know, and we think that to be successful in life is to avoid pain, loss, death, um, so forth. Anybody succeed? <laughs> you know, aging, all of that stuff. But that's not how it works. If you get an incarnation in this wild human body that you received, this is the curriculum, this is what you get. 
So then the question is, if you remember, if you're not so busy running around and trying to, you know, maintain or survive or lose yourself or whatever it is, if you stop and breathe and meditate as we have and quiet yourself, then you say, all right, here I am. What do I want to do with this? How do I live this life that I've been given on this earth, given that we don't know how long we have, right? You know you're going to die, but you don't know how long you have. Given that we don't know what's going to happen, not only with Occupy, but we don't know what's going to happen in our family or our community. All these things are really quite mysterious, and we're living them out. So when you quiet yourself, and when you center yourself, and come back to your original dignity or nobility, then the response that's described, I think, to me, it's the archetype that I most love in the Buddhist teaching, is the image or the vision of the bodhisattva. And bodhisattva is a compound word. Bodhi means awakened or free, and sattva means being. It's a being who's committed to the awakening of everyone, of all beings together. And so you go through this mystery if you choose to be a bodhisattva, if you take the bodhisattva path, which a lot of you have in your own ways, whether you know it or not, um, that as a bodhisattva, you move through the blessings of life and the difficulties, which there are a lot of both, and you rely on two things, on understanding and intention. Let me see if I can explain this. The understanding is called liberated understanding. It's a deep knowing of sorrow, suffering. The word is dukkha in Sanskrit or Pali, of struggle, of unsatisfactoriness, of just the fact that things, even when they're beautiful, don't last. Of the fundamental ungraspability of life that you can't get it to be a certain way and stay that way. It's a deep knowing of sorrow. And if you're a young person, doesn't matter, or an old person, if you're sensitive, you see your own losses and fears and regrets and grief that you carry. And you see the racism and the injustice and the continuing warfare in the world. You see supermarkets full of food and hungry children by the millions in this country and around the world. Um, or you see your own illness, or aging, or death around you. This is part of the game of life. From the Anguttara Nikaya, it seems, says the Buddha, that although we thought ourselves permanent, we are not. Although we thought ourselves settled, we are not. Although we thought we would last forever, we will not. Or Richard Baker Roshi, from San Francisco Zen Center, went to visit Isan Dorsey, who was the abbot of the Hartford Street Zen Center, when Isan was dying of AIDS. And he said, he used to say to his Zen students, Baker Roshi, if you're with someone who's dying and you're not willing to trade places with them at that very moment, then you're not fully practicing Zen. I mean, that's kind of a fierce thing to say, right? So when Isan was lying there in the last days, Baker Roshi came to visit him saying, I wish I could trade places with you right now. And Isan responded, don't worry, you'll get your chance. <laughs> so here we are, we're in this mystery that we can't really know the future of, um, and that's woven together with the ocean of tears and with the magnificent glory and beauty, not only of humanity, but of the earth itself. What the Bodhisattva needs to know is that suffering isn't a mistake, that it's part of life, and that it's workable in some way, that the measure of tears and the struggles that we have and the loss are as pa much a part of existence um, as birth and um, creativity and um, springtime beauty. Elie Wiesel, the Nobel Prize winner says, suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how you use it. If you use it to increase the anguish of yourself or others, you are degrading, even betraying it. And yet the day will come 
when we shall understand that suffering can elevate human beings. God help us to bear our suffering well. Last week I spent an evening at the Unitarian Church in the city with Michael Mead, who is a colleague and mythologist and friend, teacher that I've worked with for a long time, the day before Veterans Day. It was the end of a veterans retreat that Michael had led. Um, the church was had quite a few people come, and these vets coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and others who'd come back from the Gulf War or previous wars like Vietnam had spent almost a week together writing their stories, telling their stories, writing poems, and finding a community together where they could tell things that they had never told that were, that were poisoning their souls. Because if you've seen things that are beyond horrific, and a lot of these people had multiple deployments, there were five women vets there, and four of them had been raped in the service by friendly, for, quote, by, by our side, by, the, by their colleagues. And who do you talk to about that? Um, and they stood up in a very brave way uh, after being together for a weekend with the camaraderie of being willing to do this and read their poems and told their stories. And the, the notion of it was a welcoming home to say, we welcome you and we welcome every part of you. You don't have to hide anything from us. We welcome you as warriors back, and we want you to tell us what happened so that you can put down your weapons and put down your sorrows and put down your trauma and start something new. And it was terrifying and moving and beautiful and magnificent. You know, And it was like, it reminds me of when I've had the privilege of being around the birth of children which is only a few times. I've been with people dying many times, and they're, they're kind of similar going in and coming out, actually. There's a labor at both ends. There is. Um, but whether you're a midwife or a hospice worker, you start to realize that what we have to go through is okay. You start to realize, as a bodhisattva, that the heart is big enough, given the support and the understanding and the... the Sangha, the community that was there for these vets, or that the, the doula and the midwife, you know, share in the village or wherever it is with that woman who's giving birth, that there's an understanding that you can do this and that you can tra traverse the territory of joy and sorrow in this life with dignity and with beauty, and that you not only get, get through it, but you can do it with compassion. And this is your Buddha nature. This is the Bodhisattva's understanding. As the Sufis say, overcome all bitterness because you are not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who holds the world in her heart and the pain of the world in her heart, each of us is endowed with a certain measure of this cosmic pain. You are called upon to meet it in compassion instead of self-pity, instead of saying, oh, you know, uh, feeling sorry for yourself, which is okay sometimes, we all do that, but, but instead of that being the main tune, to meet it with compassion and say, this is the measure that I've been given. And what do you do with this? Because everybody has it, if you really look deeply. And so you start to see that the capacity to be with suffering is there in you, and yet suffering is not enough. People become loyal to their suffering. You know that, don't you? You know your story and all that happened to you. And it did happen. And you need to deal with it and heal it at times. But it's not who you are. There is in you not only the capacity to bear witness to and to go through the fire of life in some way, but there's also a capacity to dance. There's a capacity to bring a free spirit, no matter where you find yourself. You can see this in the 90-year-old widows committed to tending small flowers in the spring, and 10-year-olds with very little to eat who care for scrawny kittens holding them to their skinny chests, 
and painters going blind who paint more, and composers going deaf who write great symphonies. As you give yourself to life, it flows through you. Or as the poet Pablo Neruda writes, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. And there's something in us that can ally ourselves with the capacity for life itself to inhabit this full life that we've given, been given with its measure of sorrows and its magnificent beauty, the tainted glory of humanity, as Oscar Wilde says, as a bodhisattva, and find the freedom to do so wherever we are. So this is the first power or reliance of a bodhisattva and understanding that the world does have suffering and that it has beauty, this equal measure. Um, And in that understanding, there's an understanding of sorrow and its end, of your own moments and days and spirit of freedom that can't be taken from you. Now the second thing that a bodhisattva relies upon beside this liberated understanding is intention, motivation. It is better to light a candle than curse the gathering darkness. So when things are difficult, the response of the bodhisattva is to say, all right, what needs to be done? It's not very complicated. Actually, I heard Paul Hawken the other night, he and Joanna Macy and I were together um, at this benefit dinner for Spirit Rock uh, on Pacific Heights. Um, lovely dinner, a lot of people came to. And he was talking about his book, um, Blessed Unrest and the Spirit of um, What's Needed at This Time in the Culture. And he said, you know, it's not really that complicated. He said, it's about third grade level. I mean, ask any third grader, let's see, should we build more schools or build more missiles, you know? Should we um, feed hungry children or, you know, should we um, give money to big corporations or whatever it happens to be, those kinds. And he said, third graders will tell you, it's not all that complicated, you already know that. And it's not that I'm anti-corporation either, particularly, although they're not people, just to get that straight. Business also is beautiful and creative, and there is ways, right, livelihood is a magnificent, beautiful thing. Um, But it can get out of balance, as we know. But anyway, so Paul is saying, it's not that, it's not rocket science. We already know this. So the intention, it's better to light a candle than curse the gathering darkness. What is the intention with which you meet the difficulties and the joys of your life? And intention can be both in temporally in short moments and in longer vision, as you'll, he, as you'll see. Before each action that we do, there's an intention. You know, you get up to eat because you're hungry, or you open the refrigerator, or, or you open the refrigerator because you're lonely or bored or whatever it happens to be, but there's some intention that's there to do it. And before we act, there's an intention. And the intention as much as anything, determines the fruit of that action. So, um, if the intention is conscious or thoughtful or healthy, it brings good things to to fruition. And I like to use the example of wise speech as the kind of quintessential description of this short-term intention. If you're in conflict with somebody, Suppose I, I mean, suppose I might happen to have been in conflict with my wife at some point. Could have happened if it were, if such a thing would have happened. And I'm about to say some things to her because she said some things to me. And I take a few breaths and I pause and I reflect instead of saying what I would say to show that I'm right, which I think that I am, to show that she's wrong, which I generally might think so, to prove something, to defend myself. You know those little kinds of intentions? Suppose I stop and I say, what's my best intention? And my best intention is an intention of love, or it's an intention of connecting, or 
or communing in some way or trying to listen. So in that moment that I pause and ask, what's my best intention? In just a few breaths from trying to defend myself or be right or something, it switches inside. And all of a sudden, the, the very conversation that I'm in the middle of will be completely different. Does this make sense to you? So it's, it's that simple tuning to your intention before you act or before you speak. So that's short-term intention. And you can notice it in all the circumstances of your life, whether it's communicating with people or, or the work you do or the um, creative projects that you do, to check in with your best intention. And then there's long-term intention, which is exemplified in the Buddhist tradition by the bodhisattva vows. In the bodhisattva vows, there's various versions of them. You would take, for example, in a Zen center, you would take, every time you sit, you would recite these vows, the vows of a great bodhisattva. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to liberate them all. Okay, that's a pretty serious vow, right? Four vows. Confusion is inexhaustible, or desires are inexhaustible. I vow to put an end to them all, right? Uh, Dharma gates are endless. I vow to master them all. And the Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to fulfill it. Um, Now, these are pretty wild vows to take. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. It's one translation, or awaken them all. Now, how are you going to do that, right? The person next to you, the people in your family, they don't really want to be saved by you, if you haven't noticed. (laughs) So what could this mean? Here's another version of the Bodhisattva vow that may help understand. This is from Shantideva, and it's, again, um, what the Dalai Lama recites every morning. May I be a guard for those who need protection, a guide for those on the path, a boat, a raft, a bridge for those to cross the flood, a lamp in the darkness and a resting place for the weary. May I be medicine for sick, and food of plenty for those who are hungry. And may I bring sustenance and awakening, enduring beyond earth and sky, until all beings together are freed from sorrow, and the family of all beings awakens. Now that's really a vow to make every morning, huh? Even if the sun should arise in the west, and everything is turned upside down, the bodhisattva has only one way, which is to respond with compassion and freedom and awakening in that circumstance. When I turned 30, um, I had been teaching for just a couple years. um, And I was teaching at the, one of the founding teachers of Naropa Institute, now Naropa Buddhist University, with Chogyam Trumpa and Ram Dass and Joseph Goldstein and so forth. Um, And I went on a retreat for my birthday in the summer between our semesters up to this mountain cottage in Vail up at like 11,000 feet. It was quite beautiful. And I sat in silence for a week very ardently. You know, when you're young, you do ardent things. Um, And got very still. And then on my birthday, I was going to take bodhisattva vows. But I got so quiet. My mind got so still that when I started to say sentient beings are numberless, I vow to awaken them all, it made no sense because I didn't feel, I'd somehow my sense of self had dissolved in that week of very ardent and arduous practice and I didn't feel different than sentient beings. I felt like the, the trees and the streams and I, we were all just life together in some way and I couldn't say these vows because they felt very dualistic, and this wasn't philosophical, I just like, you know, I'm going to go and save this one and that one and that one, forget it. So I rewrote them for myself, (laughs) and I said, instead of sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them all, I just said, may I develop, or I will develop, boundless compassion. I vow to cultivate boundless compassion. Not for me or anybody else, but just how I'm going to do it. And desires are inexhaustible, 
that vow, you know, I vow to overcome them or something, I said, a boundless sense of humor. I mean, you know, it's like my poet friend Alison Luderman who writes about like hiding the chocolate chip cookies when you're on a diet while you're the only person who knows where those cookies are hidden, (laughs) right? I mean, it's ridiculous to get rid of desire, and yet, so you need some humor about it, right? And Dharma gates are endless. I vow to master them all. Endless curiosity was my vow. And then the Buddha's way is unsurpassable. And that became translated for me as profound trust. The trust that it was possible to give myself to a life of awakening as best as I could. And I use them when times get difficult, especially. You know, a couple of years ago, as I talked about last week, um, I had this neurological illness of some kind that I might still have some of, but mostly it's gone. And I got a misdiagnosis later, it turned out. It's always good to get a second opinion, I tell you. But anyway, but I had tremors and I was passing out and various things like that. And so the first diagnosis I got was quite dire. It was like uh, ALS or something like that. My body was going to fall apart and relatively quickly and with it would come dementia. I wasn't, I mean, falling apart body, okay, I'd sort of planned on that, but the dementia part was, it really got me, you know, and I noticed that um, I wasn't just chill with it all. I thought, oh, I've <laughs> paid my dues, I've sat with people dying, I've done death meditation, but it wasn't that easy, actually. And I, as I said last week, I remember talking to Ram Dass and telling him, you know, that I, I wasn't, I thought I would be just fearless, and a lot of fear came. Um, especially about the dementia part and stuff like that. And Ramdas laughed and he said, yeah, I felt that when I had my stroke, there were certain days I said, I've flunked the course, you know. I thought I knew how to do this. And, but actually, what it is is that fear is like this and you bow to it. And grief is like this and loss is like this. And the idea that you're supposed to have some particular experience, the body doesn't want to die. And so it has its own feelings and so forth. It's just the way that it is. And after a while, it's like, okay, this is, this is the way you, human existence is. Um, and I began to see that what mattered really was again coming back to these intentions. Because you don't, cont- you don't even control your thoughts and feelings all that well. I mean, all you have to do is sit for 30 minutes in meditation. You see that, okay, don't think, mind, right? Does it listen? It has no pride at all. It will do anything, right? And it does. <laughs> So when things become difficult or when there's big changes, my daughter moved away to go to college or when I moved here from the East Coast to start a new life or, you know, changes of other kinds. And when I'm confused and tired in another airport going to a retreat and saying, now why am I in this airport, you know, flying to this place or changes in my marriages and various things, I go, all right. What matters to me? And I go back to these bodhisattva vows because they are like the compass that set the direction of the heart, that no matter what happens, this is really what matters to me. Poem that I love from Diane Ackerman, I've read so many times here, her bodhisattva vow. In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning, and the wayfaring moon, and the night when it departs. I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, as a healer of misery, as a messenger of wonder, and an architect of peace. That's her way of expressing her life vow in some way. And what it does is it takes you out of time. It takes the pressure off, actually. Aldous Huxley said, an idolatrous religion is one in which time is substituted for eternity. The time of progress, the time of measuring. How am I doing? Is it getting done now? You know, Thomas Merton, that passage that he wrote to an activist, that feels very important in the Occupy time now. He said, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless 
and at times achieve no result at all, if not perhaps bring about its opposite. As you get used to this, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, and the truth of the work itself. And so it's connecting yourself with what are your highest values and planting the seeds of these. There's a kind of trust, a profound trust in the intention itself. And I got to read that passage to the Dalai Lama. I was giving some teachings, being with the Dalai Lama, and it's a very cool thing to be able to give teachings and have the Dalai Lama there sitting and listening. It was really fun, you know. We had a couple of disagreements about stuff, but that was all right. But I thought he would like that, and he was nodding, you know, because Tibet is a great weight on him. And, and what he says himself is, what I can, the thing I can most rely on is my sincere motivation. You know, that you, it's not in your control how it turns out, but it's in your control the heart that you bring to it. Thoreau writes, Though I do not believe a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me you have a seed there, and I am prepared to expect wonders. An intention is like planting a seed. You don't know when it will come to fruition. It's not given to you to know the results, but you do it. story from Rachel Remen, wonderful physician and healer. She writes of David, an internist, who was a doc on the San Francisco General AIDS Ward in the early 80s, years before there were protease inhibitors and all the things, when the epidemic was really bad and almost all the patients who were admitted to his service died. Many of them were young men quite close to his own age, people whose lives mattered to him deeply. And after a time he became overwhelmed with a sense of futility. He felt that way on and off for that long residency. Now David also happens to be trained as a Buddhist, and it's always been his practice um, to offer prayers for each of his patients. When a patient dies, even now, He lights a candle on his altar at home and keeps it burning for 49 days. For the whole time he was at San Francisco General, he prayed for each dying young man and lit a candle on his altar for them. Now years afterward, he tells this story with a wistful smile. It's made him wonder. Perhaps the reason he was there was not what he thought. He had expected to serve by curing and rescuing his patients. But their problems proved resistant to his modern medical expertise, and he began to feel useless. But maybe he was not meant to be there to cure people. Perhaps he was there so that no one would die without someone to pray for them. Perhaps he had served every one of his patients flawlessly. And so it's not given to us to determine the outcome. But what's given to us as a bodhisattva is to plant the seeds from our heart, the intention that we, that we steer our lives by. It's our song. It's what we're here for. There's an Arabic proverb, a bird does not sing because it has an answer. It sings because it has a song. And we each have a certain song to sing, to bring to the world. And if you can't bring your song, there's a tremendous loss and sorrow in it. Now, another thing that's important in the bodhisattva understanding is that a bodhisattva cannot be idealistic. I mean, all you have to do is sit in meditation for a little while, and you learn that very quickly because your mind doesn't do what you expect, and the emotions come, and your body does what it does. And It's like the Zen poet Ryokan, the most beloved Japanese poet, where he wrote, last year a foolish monk, this year no change. Right? <laughs> and so you have to become 
in some way as a bodhisattva comfortable with imperfection. In fact, one great Zen ancestor says, to be enlightened is to be without anxiety about imperfection. Enlightenment is not being anxious about the imperfections of the world, because it is imperfect, according to how you'd like it to be, and it will always be so. When I read Shambhalasan or Tricycle, I wonder who these people are. They admit to occasional random thoughts, but it's clear that most of them are getting enlightened, or at least able to dwell in clear emptiness. Or those yoga journal people, where everyone is thin, composed, and bends in all directions. (laughs) Or fortune, where everyone's a millionaire, a captain of success. So where, I ask, is the magazine for failure? (laughs) For 30 years of falling and only later recalling, oh yes, be here now. For the continual recovering from the storming, the endless repairing of the broken sails. For this thick and heavy middle-aged body barely bending. For the immense gratitude in meeting once again next week's payroll, next month's rent. And so for the bodhisattva there has to be some measure of graciousness with the imperfections of the world our own and those of others, the bodhisattva abides in compassion, gain and loss, praise and blame, joy and sorrow. And each individual is unique in their wild, mysterious strangeness. I mean, nobody in, you know, hundreds of billions of stars of galaxies has ever been quite like you before. Isn't that fantastic? Not to speak of the weird people around you, right? We are all, and yet we're also part of the cosmos and the stars and the dance. And the Bodhisattva relaxes and says, wow, what a show, you know, with all these characters on stage. So there's some sense of both the eternal, if you will, and the preciousness of each moment and each day. And your capacity, as Zen Master Ryokan says, you know, the Zen Master is able to go into the deepest hells and play about as in a fairground and to go and be with the wild animals without being troubled by them. Why is this so? Because there's nothing he sees that isn't sacred. When he respects everything as part of the sacred dance, he can go everywhere without fear. And this is the the, the dance of the Bodhisattva, to see the beauty or the sacredness even in that which you see as the opposite or the enemy. I mean, the Dalai Lama talks about the communist Chinese army as my friends, the enemy. He doesn't just say my friends because they're not exactly. And he doesn't say the enemy because it's not so. He says, oh, my friends, the enemy. We have this relationship. A poem from Ellen Bass. called If You Knew. If you knew, what if you knew you'd be the last to touch someone? If you were taking tickets, for example, at the theater, tearing them, giving back the ragged stubs, you might take care to touch that palm, brush your fingertips along the lifeline's crease. When a man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport, when the car in front of me doesn't signal, when the clerk at the pharmacy won't say thank you, I don't remember they're going to die. A friend told me she'd been with her aunt. They'd just had lunch and the waiter, a young gay man with plum black eyes, joked as he served the coffee, kissed her aunt's powdered cheek when they left. Then they walked half a block and her aunt dropped dead on the sidewalk. How close does the dragon's spume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are, soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless, pinned against time? What if you knew you'd be the last to touch someone? So there's this mystery that we move through life and it's the littlest things that make the difference. The little ones. 
If one person smiles at me on the way to the bridge, I won't jump. I mean, that's extremely painful to hear and yet also terribly important as a message. And we hope someone did. And maybe we even hope it was us. So the point for the Bodhisattva, and this tanka over to your left on the wall is Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva. In the feminine form, she has a thousand hands all, and a thousand pairs of eyes to look out across the world and see the sorrows and the difficulties of the world and have a hand to extend to everyone in need. For the Bodhisattva, the point is not to perfect the world, nor even to perfect yourself. You've tried that, the gym, <laughs> liposuction, therapy. It's not about self-improvement. <clears throat> the point is to perfect your love, not yourself or another. To love well not with attachment to the way it's going to be, because you don't have a choice about that. If you try to get attached to people or things or results, you can aim for them, you can vision something beautiful, but really what you can offer is your dedication. That's part of your love. You can offer your commitment. And you can offer this deep trust of a bodhisattva. Because it's, the spiritual path is not about some grim duty that you have to take on and oh now I have to meditate and become enlightened spare you you know and your friends especially <laughs> Alice Walker I like to read dear Alice I think it pisses God off if you walk by the color purple in a field somewhere and don't notice it people think pleasing God is all God care about but any fool living in the world can see it's always trying to please us back and so when people go to see the Dalai Lama, which they do by the tens of thousands now, he's become such an icon, I've seen him weep. He's tremendously caring and compassionate and hearing the suffering of beings. He's also very free in his emotional expression, profound kind of open heart. But they don't go for his tears alone. They go to hear him laugh. He has this fabulous giggle and laugh that somebody who could carry the weight of Tibet or the difficulties that he does and laugh like that is so boys up the heart, so shows us what's possible. The instructions from the Buddha again, live in joy and love even among those who hate. This is for Occupy. Live in joy and health even among the afflicted. Live in joy and peace even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fears and attachments. Know the sweet joy of living in the way. So it's also to find your capacity for joy even in the difficulties of the world. A story to read to you. This is from a British writer, Bernard Hare. Happened in 1982. The police called at my student hovel early evening, but I didn't answer as I thought they'd come to evict me. I hadn't paid my rent in months. But then I got to thinking my mom hadn't been too good, and what if it was something about her? We had no phone in these student hovels, and so I had to nip down the phone box. And I rang home to Leeds to find my mother was in hospital and not expected to survive the night. Get home, son, my dad said. So I ran to the railway station to find I'd missed the last train. A train was going as far as Peterborough, but I would miss the connecting Leeds train by 20 minutes. I bought a ticket home and got on anyway. The whole way, but I had a screwdriver in my pocket, a bunch of skeleton keys. I was so desperate to come. I planned to steal a car in Peterborough just to get home if it killed me that night. Tickets, please, I heard as I stared out the window at the passing darkness, fumbled for my ticket and gave it to the guard. I'd been crying. I must have looked a sight. You okay, he asked. 
Of course I'm okay, I said. Why wouldn't I be? What's that got to do with you in any case? You know, you look awful, he said. Anything I can do, you get lost, mind your own damn business. I said, that'd be a big help. I wasn't in the mood for talking to anybody. He was only a little bloke, and he must have read the danger signals in my body language, and I was a pretty good guy. He didn't like the tone of voice, but he sat down opposite me anyway and continued. He said, if there's a problem, I'm here to help. Now, I was big, and I thought for a second about sending him on his way, but somehow it didn't seem appropriate. He wasn't doing much wrong, and I was going through all the stages of grief and denial and everything, a cauldron of emotion. My mom was dying, and he placed himself in my line of fire. The only other thing I could think of to get rid of him was tell him my story. Look, I said, my mom's in the hospital dying. She won't survive the night, and I'm going to miss the connection to Leeds at Peterborough. I'm not sure how I'm going to get home. I don't know. I've got to get home tonight. I won't get another chance. I'm upset. I don't feel like talking. You know, could you just leave me alone, buddy? Sorry to hear that, son. He said, I'll leave you alone then. Hope you make it home. And he wandered back down the carriage. Ten minutes later, he was at back of the side of my table. I thought, oh no, here he goes again. He touched my arm. Listen, listen, boy. When we get to Peterborough, shoot straight over to platform one quick as you like. The Leeds train will be there. Wasn't really registering. Come again, I said stupidly, what you mean? Is it late or something? No, it isn't late, he said defensively, as if he really cared whether trains were late or not. It's not late. Nope, I just radioed Peterborough. They're going to hold the train for you. As soon as you get on, it goes. Everybody will be complaining about how late it is, but let's not worry about this on this occasion. You get home, and that's the main thing. Good luck. God bless. Then he was off down the train again. Tickets, please. Any more tickets? I suddenly realized what a top-class, fully-fledged doylem, I don't know that word, <laughs> but I can imagine what it means I was, and chased him down the train, wanted to give him all the money from my wallet, my driver's license, my keys, but I knew he'd be offended. I caught him and grabbed his arm. I just wanted to, I was suddenly speechless. He said, it's okay, not a problem. He had a warm smile. He was a good man for his own sake, didn't want anything. I had to thank him. Not a problem, he said. If you feel the need to thank me, next time you see somebody in trouble, you help them out. That'll pay me back plenty. Tell them to pay you back the same way, and soon the world might be a bit, a bit better place. I was at my mother's side when she died in the early hours of the morning, and even now I can't think of her without remembering the good conductor on the late night train to Peterborough, and to this day I won't hear a bad word said about British Rail, no matter how slow they are. <laughs> My meeting with the good conductor changed me from a selfish, potentially violent hedonist into a decent human being, but it did take time, and I've paid him back a lot of time since then. I tell the young people I work with, and I'll keep doing it till the day I die. You don't owe me nothing, nothing at all, and if you think you do, give the same advice the good conductor gave me. Pass it on down the line. It's not that complicated. It's not. So if you were to make your vows, if you were to set the compass of your heart, you know, or if you were to reflect on what direction really matters with what you do with this mysterious human life, now what would they be?
This is a very sweet kind of silence, kind that was in that chapel at Stanford. From Mark Morford, he writes, Stop thinking our global crisis is all there is and realize that for every ongoing war and religious outrage and environmental devastation, there's a thousand counterbalancing acts of staggering generosity and humanity and art and beauty happening all over the world right now on a breathtaking scale, from flower box to cathedral. Resist the temptation to drown in fatalism, to shake your head or sigh or throw in the karmic towel, and realize that this is the perfect moment to change the energy, to envision a re-enchantment of the world, to step right up and crank your personal volume right when it all seems dark or bitter or offensive or acrimonious and conflicted and bilious. There is your place, your opening. Remember mystery and finally believe in the seeds you plant. Believe you are part of a groundswell, a resistance, a seemingly small but actually very large impending karmic transformation, a great shift, the beginning of something important and potent and unstoppable. And it's so clear at this time that the world doesn't need more oil or energy or more food or more technology, although we'll get that. Um, it needs less greed and less hatred unless ignorance and delusion and racism and fear. Um, it really needs a transformation of heart and consciousness if we're to live together as many of us as do on this earth. Um, and that's what's possible. It's what's possible for you as a human being, your dignity, your awakening, and it's your gift to give to, to life. So let's sit for a moment. And so, to end, I'd like us to do a very simple chant, and you can go out into the autumn evening. In India, when you meet a person, the most common greeting is to put your hands together and say, Namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. I see the spirit that was born into this life. Um, and the root of the word Namaste in Sanskrit or Pali is the word namo, which means to bow to or pay respects or honor. I'd like us to chant namo nine times. And as you do, you can feel what you want to offer your respect to. You know, to people you loved or who've taught you something or that you care about, to a place in the earth that you're concerned about, to something that um, needs your care or someone that does. And we'll chant these nine times and then go out into the evening. Na mo 
set beautiful intentions, wise intentions, and carry them everywhere. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.